first service tonight. I tried my best not to be judgmental, uh, but who moves from Oahu, Hawaii to Ohio? Amen. Like who, who does, right? I talked to them after the service, like who does that? Like, well, we felt like God led us here. So we say this every week. And so our uh, like groups are organized on a trimester schedule. And so the third trimester of groups will start in the middle of September. So we're in between trimesters right now for our, our group structure. So it's a great time to get connected to a group. And so you can go to lhc.life. Uh, be known and sign up for a group there, and we're already compiling families. And so uh, when that third trimester starts up, you'll have a chance to get connected to a group. There's a connection event coming up on September the 9th to get connected to a group as well. And this is what we say, uh, groups are where a big church uh, becomes small, and groups where we do pastoral care. And so it's a crucial part of our strategy. So if you're not connected to a group, uh, we encourage you to do that between now and when that third trimester starts up in the middle of September. There's an elderly lady, and she was... Uh, searching diligently, circling, circling, circling the shopping mall, trying to find a parking spot so we all can uh, identify with that, right? So finally, uh, she sees, and what do you want to see when you're circling a parking lot? You want to see someone coming out, walking towards a car with bags, right? Because you know they're leaving, and so there's going to be a spot opened up. So she sees a guy carrying out with this, a stack of boxes uh, coming out of there. And so she does what we always do. Uh, she creeps up closely behind him and follows him around the parking lot, trying to find out where he's going to land, right? So we've all done that. So finally, she follows him around the parking lot, and he walks up to a car. And so he uh, unlocks his doors, and she's very patient. Uh, he surely but slowly unloads box after box after box. And so she's patiently waiting for him to pull out of there so she can pull in. And so just so everyone around her knows, she turns on her turn signal, right? To let everyone know that when he pulls out, I'm pulling in. So finally, he unloads every box he has. He gets in the car, and then he uh, starts up his car, and he puts on his seatbelt, and uh, he starts playing with the radio. And she's thinking, you kidding me? Hurry up, right? But she's being patient. And so he adjusts his mirrors and checks all behind him. And finally, she sees what everyone wants to see in that scenario, reverse lights, right? So reverse lights come on. He backs his car up, and he backs out of that spot. And as soon as he backs out of that spot, a young guy in a shiny new red Corvette darts into that open spot. And she is livid. And so she rolls down her window, and she shouts out, You can't do that. That's not how it works. To which he replies, Hey, lady. That's the way it is when you're young and fast. She's furious. And so she puts her car to reverse, uh, backs up, shifts it into drive, stomps on the gas pedal, and crashes into the back of his new Corvette. The guy cannot believe what just happened. He rolls down to the window and says, you can't do that. To which she replies, that's the way it is when you're old and rich. Right? How great would that be? Right? Well, in this story, we're going to encounter this uh, morning in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to find a guy who's both, he is young and he is rich. And so let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me or your tablets or your phone, whatever you're using this morning, to Mark chapter 10. And if you've been in church for a while, this is a familiar passage maybe to you. It is the story of the rich young ruler here in Mark chapter 10. And so... Uh, we're continuing our series for the second section of the Gospel of Mark, and we'll wrap up that series uh, next week. And so if you're a student, you're a Bible observer, you know, last week we ended with Mark chapter 9, and then we're jumping over a section of Scripture uh, in uh, Mark chapter 10, particularly verses 1 through 12, and that's a passage about divorce. And so uh, last week I made a big deal and said, hey, last week's a tough passage, remember that? Uh, you know, cut off your hand, cut off your foot, pluck out your eye. What did all that mean? It was kind of a rough passage. And so I made a big deal saying, we don't teach around tough passages. 
as we teach through them. And so when you realize we're skipping over a section on divorce, remarriage, you may be thinking, hey, that, that seems disingenuous. I thought we taught through tough passages, not around them. And so here's why we're doing that this morning. If you want to understand, have a biblical theology of what the Bible teaches about divorce and marriage and remarriage, you can't just teach one passage. There are several key passages on that subject, and if you want to form a biblical theology, you can't teach one week ago, we've covered everything the Bible teaches on that subject. You've got to teach all those passages together and compare Scripture with Scripture on that subject. So we're not avoiding that, we're saving that when we can teach through a whole probably four or five week series on what the Bible actually teaches on that subject. So that's why we're uh, doing that this morning. So but this morning we're going to look at verses uh, 17 down through verse 27 in a message titled Wrecked by Riches. All right, so Mark chapter 10, uh, let's pick up the text here in verse 17. It says, now as he was going out on the road, so if you remember uh, Jesus' ministry, chapters 1 through 8, he's teaching in Galilee region, uh, starting his public ministry, and then starting about chapter 11, the third section, he's uh, teaching in Jerusalem, his ministry in Jerusalem. So here in the middle in section 2 of Gospel Mark, it's the journey between Galilee and Jerusalem. And as he's traveling down to Jerusalem, he's teaching his disciples all these lessons. Hey, you're going to have to start learning on how to live by faith and not by sight because I'm leaving. All right, so we're kind of eavesdropping on that, that conversation. And so as they're traveling down to Jerusalem, he's going on the road, verse 17 says, One came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And so Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And then Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at his word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And then Jesus looked around at his disciples. How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Now, uh, when you look at this passage, it's important to note, this is an actual encounter. This is not a parable where Jesus is making up a fictitious scenario to teach a real spiritual truth. Because uh, if we don't understand this is a real encounter, we say, oh, this is probably a parable. We, we kind of can wiggle out from under that going, well, we don't really know how the man would respond. Or, or we don't really know what Jesus would have said because this is a parable, so totally hypothetical. No, no, this is a real encounter. And so there's no margin to wiggle out from under what Jesus is teaching in some hypothetical uh, parable, parable kind of literature. This is a real uh, encounter. And so in this actual account, Jesus takes direct aim at this man's wealth. Now, here's the deal. We hear that, we're like, good thing, because I checked my bank account, and I'm good this morning, right? Like, Jesus is not talking to me. Listen, if you live in America, you're wealthy. Uh, the, the rest of the world, this is all of us, but here's the deal. This is really not even a passage about wealth, even though Jesus is going to teach some warnings on it. This is really a passage not about wealth. This is a passage about salvation. 
And this man has a, a level of superficial spirituality, uh, and Jesus kind of pushes through all of that and says, hey, listen, here's the heart issue, and, and this is why you won't surrender to me because something else has your heart. And, and as a result of this man goes away sad. And so this is a passage not only about salvation, but more specifically about barriers to salvation. Now, now, if you're here this morning and you've never received Christ and, and you're kind of like, I don't know why I haven't done that or I'm not sure if I've done that, there, there's a chance you may find yourself in this story. And if, in my experience is the longer you're a Christian, the less sense it makes to you uh, as to why other people aren't Christians. Am I right? Like, like you, you've, you've felt the Lord's redeeming love. You've felt a sustaining grace. Uh, you've experienced his, his mercy. And, and so you, you just can't wrap your mind around why in the world would people not want what I've experienced? Why in the world would someone not want the mercy of God and the grace of God flowing through their life? Why in the world would they not be walking with Jesus? Well, uh, in this passage, and, and here's what's interesting, many times, and I, and I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who are not born again, who are not followers of Jesus Christ, but they would lay claim to the fact, even get defensive as to the fact that they are deeply spiritual people. Have you noticed this? Everyone in our culture is spiritual. Have you noticed that? And, and, and people would claim to that, I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not into organized religion, and, and I've never been born again. I don't think that narrow gate and all that stuff, I think that's exclusive, and I don't like that. I'm an inclusive person, but I'm, but I'm deeply spiritual. But yet they've yet to be born again. And so Jesus did said this. He didn't say, hey, those who are spiritual, we're inherit the kingdom of God. We're, we're going to see this guy had a level of spirituality. But, but in this passage, which is about salvation, uh, you're going to find uh, basically two things this morning. I, wanna, I want you to see from the text this morning. There are two common beliefs that will keep you out of heaven. Two common. So if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, we're thrilled you're here. You're kind of checking out. I totally get that. Uh, but you're gonna find, you may find yourself in this story. Or if you're here and you know Christ, but you know someone who doesn't know Christ, you, you may find them in this story. Because in this passage about salvation, there are two common beliefs that we see uh, in this encounter Jesus has with the rich young ruler. And here's the first one. Uh, first common belief that keeps a person out of heaven is this. If it is to be, it's up to me. If it is to be, uh, it's up to me. And when you read through this account of the rich young ruler, here's the thing you've got to land on. that This guy was impressive. For the sake of illustration, we'll call him Brad, all right? We'll just, just help you remember that, all right? This guy's impressive. Like, this is an account that's actually told uh, in, in the first three Gospels. Those are called the Synoptic Gospels. And so this account is in all three of the first three Gospels here, Mark chapter 9, uh, Luke chapter 8, and it's in Matthew as well, and so, or Luke chapter 18. So, so the reality is this, and when you read all three accounts in those first three Gospels, you're going to find off that basically there are three words that describe this guy. He was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. And so first off, uh, he was rich. Now, when we first read this story, we're like, that was his problem. Like, like Jesus totally against wealth and Jesus, you know, all those kind of things. And so money's all bad, but that's, that's not what the passage is really uh, all about. And so money has some benefits. You can take care of your family. And the Bible says if I don't take care of my family, I'm worse than an unbeliever. Uh, I can use my money to invest in kingdom endeavors and all those things. So money in of itself is not bad. And this guy was rich. This guy had a level of wealth. And he's like, how rich was he? Well, I, it doesn't totally say, uh, but what it does say in Mark chapter 10 in verse 22, at the end of verse 20, it says this, for he had great possessions. Now, I looked up that word great in the Greek, and here's what it means, more than one, all right? I just made that up, right? Like, he, he look, this guy had, he had margin, he had more than he needed, he had resources aplenty, like this guy was doing really, really 
well. And so, uh, so this uh, is a result of that, but because of his success and his acumen and his affluence, he probably had a fair measure of respect in the community. Like, hey, this guy either inherited wealth or he grew wealth or he got wealth or somebody's maintained wealth. And so, so long that this guy's rich and so as a part of that, what's attached to that sometimes, he's got a, a, a lever of a respectability in the community. So this guy's got a pretty impressive resume. But not only that, he's young. Now, I don't know why uh, one of the Gospels tells us this guy was young. I don't know if it's to describe that, that he had so much potential that this guy clearly had a bright future. Like this guy was, you ever see those lists that come out, top 40 leaders, under 40? This guy was on that list. And so it says he was successful, he's affluent. It says he was young, he had loads of potential. He's a you know, top of the ladder, kind of a hard charger kind of a guy. But also the Bible says he was a ruler. Now, the scripture doesn't say ruler over what? Uh, but one commentator, when I'm digging through this week, offered up the following, and I don't think this is uh, far-fetched, and it kind of helps you understand the text. Uh, he said this, he said, I quote, this man was probably a ruler in the sense of, uh, of the synagogue. Uh, that would be the only ruler essentially in the social religious life of Israel. He wouldn't be a scribe or a Pharisee necessarily, but a very wealthy layman, very young, who had ascended uh, to the leading layperson in the synagogue, which was usually reserved for an older man, someone wiser, someone who had lived longer, typically would be called an elder because in reality they were uh, older. And so this guy had a, a measure of authority or power or influence attributed to his life. This guy's incredibly uh, impressive. He's got an incredible resume. He's a person of high competency, clearly a hard charger. Now, now if you've ever been around someone uh, in our culture who's a hard charger, sometimes in order to get to the top of the ladder, they'll step on every, every person on the way up if they have to. You know, they'll claim it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. You just got to get out there and get after it. And, and if you got to you know, leave a trail of destruction your way, that's just the way it is. But this guy wasn't like that at all. Because not only was he a high achiever, uh, the text also tells us he was uh, incredibly humble. Incredibly humble. You, you say, how do you know that? Here's what's interesting. When you look at the Gospels, when people were rulers or religious people, people of influence, people of affluence, all, all in between, when they came to Jesus often in the Gospels, what are they doing? They're coming trying to trap him, right? Like, hey, what about this scenario? And he would like say something, they go away like, oh, I can't, you got me again. Or like, they try and pin him into a corner or something like that. Or sometimes we see Nicodemus, a religious uh, ruler, uh, there's part of the Sanhedrin council probably. He comes to Jesus by night. Like, I don't want anyone to know that I've got questions and I don't have this all figured out. That. So when people came to Jesus, often rulers, leaders, they wanted to trap him. They were embarrassed. And so not this guy. What's verse 17 say? Verse 17 says, now as he's going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Here's a guy in broad daylight. This guy's one of the most affluent and influential people around. This guy's probably a leader in the synagogue. So he's used to people coming to him and asking him questions. Hey, you're successful. What would you do? Hey, you've got, you've got, you clearly, you've got your act together. You're at the top lay person. I mean, you're the EF hut in our congregation. And so I'd like to know what you would do. And so here's a guy who's used to being questions asked of him, running toward Jesus in broad daylight, despite being an incredibly affluent and influential person in his community. And he gets down on his knees and says, hey, he says, I've got questions. And good teacher, I'm assuming that you've got answers. So this guy's successful, but he's also Humble, his success had not gotten to his head. 
not only was he successful, not only was this guy uh, humble, uh, but this guy also, uh, Scripture says, is he was spiritually uh, interested. What's he say in verse 17? Uh, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit uh, eternal life? And this, this guy's got spiritual interest. And sometimes people of means, people of affluence, that they don't really see a need for God because there's no voids in their life. Their influence and their affluence is able for them to obtain all the things their heart desires. So there's not a big, deep void in their life. They're not searching for some deeper meaning. Their life has afforded them all the things they desire, but not this guy. This guy says, hey, despite all my success that I'm rich, young, and a ruler, I'm humble enough to come down in broad daylight, get down on my knees, and I'm spiritually interested. Despite all of these things, there is a void in my life that these things have not fulfilled. And so this guy is spiritually interested. That's what the text says. But as impressive as those things are, this is a guy of great morality. Now, sometimes we see a person like that, we're like, you know what, despite all the facade of influence and, you know, look, false humility, like if you peeled back the layers, you'd find some dirt on them, right? Like if you just open up that closet, some skeleton, and somehow they did this, they cheat, and they got ahead, and, and they're not as integrity as everybody thinks they are, and they're not as great. Like, that's just how we think that we're cynical, right? This guy's a moral guy. Uh, look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus answers, says, you know the commandments? Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father. That's the second half, which the second half of the Ten Commandments are horizontal commands. The first five are vertical commands. There's a reason you're going to find out. Jesus didn't ask him one of the first five because the guy would have failed the test. And so Jesus said, hey, what about these, how you relate to other people and your dealings with other people in the second five? And he answered and said to him, teacher, I've done all these things. I've kept them from my youth. Now, was that probably totally true? Absolutely not. You see, the the whole purpose of the law, which the Ten Commandments is a part of the overall law of of Moses, the the purpose of the law was to to point people to Jesus. The purpose of the law was the people look at this perfect standard. Sometimes people are like, oh, the law is bad. No, the law is perfect. And so the purpose of the law was to hold up this perfect standard that no one could achieve. You think, why that? Because in realizing I can't achieve, I've fallen short of this perfect standard God has displayed. I need Jesus. That's the whole purpose of the law. The Bible describes it as a tutor that leads us to Christ. And so this guy, so, so he probably, that probably wasn't a genuine, total genocide. But at the very least, what we do know from the guy's response is that he's trying, Right? And when, when a claim of Jesus lays out, hey, here's a claim of morality, the guy says, I, look, as far as I can tell, I'm trying to do all of those things. Now, now, can we just be honest? Like up to this point in time, if, if this guy were, were part of our fellowship, if he'd been coming here, and, and we'd rec- I know who that guy is. He owns this business. He's successful. I saw him in a you know, top 40 under 40. And, man, he's a humble guy despite his influence and affluence. He's humble. He's moral. He's interested in spiritual things. Can we just be honest? That at this point, if we, that's all we knew about the guy, we would probably say, clearly he's a believer. As a matter of fact, we may be tempted to say, well, clearly, look at his influence and his affluence. Clearly, God has blessed all of his endeavors. Clearly, the hand of God is on his life, and God just keeps blessing him over and over and over. This guy had an incredible resume. And so when Jesus push through all that superficial spirituality and expose this man's heart, we would be just as shocked as the disciples were. 
Listen, the disciples were so shocked that two times, verse 24 and verse 26, that they just like, are you kidding? Like, if this, like, who can be saved then, right? And the reason they were so astonished is because in their culture, they were taught, much like the prosperity gospel today, that, that uh, affluence was a sign of God's blessing. And so they looked at this guy's life and go, clearly God's blessed this guy. And Jesus says, hey, you're not close to the kingdom of God. And they're so shocked that they look back and go, man, how is that possible? Who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with God, all things are possible, right? And so what went wrong? Like, how, how do we go from, from this incredible resume in verses 17 uh, down through verse 21, this incredible resume that, that listen, at us at first glance, we would say clearly this person's a believer, clearly the hand of God is on their life. What, how did it go so far south where this guy walks away totally destroyed? To the point where the disciples are like, we don't get it. How's he pop? What went wrong? Well, the mistake this man made is he thought salvation was based on something you do, not someone you belong to. You say, where do you see that? It's in the text. We've read it three or four times. We just glossed over it. Look at verse 17. It exposes what, where this guy went wrong, how this story went south so quickly. He's running on the road. He comes to Jesus. He kneels at him. He asks him, good teacher, what shall I, and, uh, what shall I, read this next word with me. What shall I, what? There, say it. Do. Like you just, like, listen, I'm not afraid of hard work. I'm a hard charger. I'm a, I've, I've built you know, wealth. I've done all this. I've, I've climbed the ladder. I'm a ruler. I, I'm not. So you just tell me, Jesus, there's something I must do to inherit eternal life. There's something I must achieve or something I've got to add into all that. I'm willing to do all those things. And the reality is this. The message of the gospel is not do. The message of the gospel is done. The message of the gospel is not work harder. The message of the gospel is it is finished. And this man thought, I've got to do something to inherit eternal life. And when Jesus exposed and said, no, no, you don't have to do something, but you do have to be willing to surrender everything, it exposed this man's superficial spirituality, and he walked away destroyed. Destroyed. Because he thought up at this point in time that if it is to be, it's up to me. And so you just tell me what I need to add in life. You just tell me something, and I'll achieve it. If I, you know, just do this, do that. I'll do all those things. And in his mind, if it is to be, it's up to me uh, spiritually. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And this man uh, didn't understand grace. Listen, this man thought that somehow salvation was a mixture of, of, of God does his part and I'll do my part. And you do right by God and, and God will do right by you. And yes, God's you know, doing his thing and I believe in those things. But I'm working hard on my end as well. So you tell me, Jesus, what do I have to do? And here's my concern. In a church where there's about a thousand people gathering on the weekends, there's not more uh, than one person who's spiritually interested and humble and moral and all these things. But what they're trusting in is a mixture of faith and works that somehow... Yes, I believe, and God does his part, and if I do my part, then in the end, I'll gain eternal life. And you know, dear friend, this guy, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And here's the scary thing. Up to this point, this guy wasn't even aware. That's what he's basing his hope in. And my fear is there's people gathering here every weekend. I don't know everybody. But my fear is some people are in the same place. And so in keeping with Jesus' example of cutting through superficial spirituality, let me just ask you a simple question, because here's the deal. This question will reveal exactly what you're trusting in for eternal life. Here's the question, most important question anyone's ever going to ask you this morning. Here's the question. What are you trusting in for the forgiveness of your sins?
Now, you've heard me say on multiple occasions that I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I do work here for a nonprofit, right? You've heard me say that? But I'm going to take my little stab here this morning at prophecy. And I'm going to predict that, that when I ask you that question, what are you trusting in for the forgiveness of your sins? If I just pause right now and you just could form an answer in your head right now, just awkward pause. That whatever's in your mind right now, whatever the answer is, just at first, like, oh, this is it. Like, whatever it is, that's what you're trusting in. And, and here's a little stab at pro- prophetic speech on my part. I'm going to prophesy this morning that whatever is in your mind right now, the answer to that question is, it's going to fall in one of three categories for everybody in the room this morning. Let's just see if my prophecy is true, all right? Number one, category number one is works. That when someone asks you, what are you trusting in for the forgiveness of your sins, you would, you would lay claim and say, I'm, I'm living the best life that I can. I'm trying hard to be moral. I would never steal from anyone. I clearly believe in God, or at least I'm thinking about that. I'm in church this morning. Like, like I, I think that if there's this eternal scale, then, then I think my good deeds are clearly going to outweigh my bad deeds. And so I, I'm not a bad person. I'm a moral person. And so I'm trusting in my works. I'm trusting in the morality of my own life. Now, here's the problem with that. The Bible says this, in, in this Old Testament style book of Isaiah, I think around chapter 64, I think, uh, says this, all of our deeds of righteousness, so all of our good works, all of our morality, all of our deeds of righteousness are like filthy rags. And so if that's you and you're trusting in your works, and when I ask you that question, like, oh, I'm a good person, I'm a moral person, I'm, you know, that's, I, that's what I'm trusting in for the forgiveness of my sins. Basically what you're saying is this, you're, you're leading this life and you think all these works are stacking up and your good's going to outweigh your bad. Listen, when God looks at all that, here's what God sees, dirty laundry. Compared to the righteousness of Christ, who's the standard of righteousness, God says that's dirty laundry. New Testament says this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if works could get you to heaven, let me ask you a question. How much is enough? Like when do you lay your head down and go, I'm, I crossed the finish line. I finally accumulated enough. Like I finally have crossed. And clearly I've made a clear case for my morality. When's it enough? If that's what you're trusting in. Now, some people are trusting in works. That was your answer to that question. Uh, here's the second category. And this, was the, this is what this guy would have answered based on the text. Uh, the second, so the second category is faith and works. I, I, would, I would never just trust in my own goodness. Like I, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus and I'm clearly, I'm interested in spiritual things. I'm at church this morning. I mean, I believe when the Bible says that Jesus died on the cross and buried and rose, so I, I, I don't disagree with any of those things. And so there's a measure of faith and measure, and that's where this man was. Clearly he had some type of faith. Clearly he was interested in godly morality. Clearly he was interested in spiritual things. Clearly he had questions about eternal life. But in his mind, that was a measure of faith on his part. But the, the, the missing part of that equation for salvation was what must I do? And my fear is that there are some people who gather here every single week and that that would describe that when I ask you that question, what are you trusting in for the forgiveness of your sins? Uh, you would have an answer that, that is a mixture of faith and works, that, that God has done his part on the cross, but then I'm doing my part and I, and I just feel like uh, God has done right by me uh, and I feel like I've got to do right by God. So in the end, I'm trusting in what Jesus did, but I'm also making sure that, that I do my part as well. And between what Jesus did and what I'm trying to do, surely eternal life will come my way. And so that's a mixture of faith and works. And that's where this guy was. And the third category is this, it's faith alone. 
This is the person who says, hey, apart from the grace of God and the work of Christ on the cross, I've got no hope. That apart from Jesus intervening in my life and delivering me from the penalty and power of sin, I've got no hope of salvation. I bring nothing to the table spiritually in this equation. Like I, I, don't, I can't offer anything. I can't improve on the finished work of Christ. And so when someone asks me, what are you trusting in for the forgiveness of your sins? Listen, I, I, there's nothing other than Jesus Christ and his shed blood alone to deliver me from the power and penalty of sin. That's all I've got. I've got nothing to bring to the table. I'm spiritually and morally bankrupt, and apart from the mercy of God in the person and work of Christ, I've got no hope of eternal life. So when you ask me, what are you trusting in for the forgiveness of your sins? Jesus and Jesus alone. That's it. That's it. The Bible says this in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved, Through faith, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And here's a guy who was moral, believed in God, zealous for spiritual things, sincere, all these things. But he was trying his best to please God. And he was good, but he was lost. And my fear is with with a large crowd gathering here every single weekend, there are some people practicing the same faith that he's practicing. God did his part, and they're trying to do their part. And the reality is they're trusting in faith and works when the Bible says that salvation is by grace through faith, not not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, when you read this passage, there's an honest question uh, that has to be asked. And when answering what was required to inherit eternal life, why did Jesus answer him like he did? Look, look at verses 21 and 22. Then Jesus looks at this guy and says, you just t- tell me what to do. Like, I'll do, I'll, do, like I'll, I'll do something. I'll fix it. If I don't have it, I'll fix it. So Jesus says, uh, here's the law, the second half of the law. Um, I, I did all that. What else? Verse 21. And Jesus looking at him, loved him. Now, now, now here's, here's what's interesting. Look up here. This seems like a harsh response from Jesus, does it not? Because when the guy asked him, what do I do? You think Jesus would, like, Jesus would share the gospel, right? Jesus doesn't share the gospel. Well, Jesus says, hey, everything you have, go sell it and give it away. And you're like, that's harsh. That's unloving. But you know what this? Only in Mark, in the three gospels, three synoptic gospels, only in Mark does it have that little phrase, Jesus loved him. Why? Because Jesus loved him enough to tell him the truth about his spiritual condition. You see, love is not always saying what people want to hear. Love is what they need. Say what they need, okay? And so verse 21, and Jesus loved him. And said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, take up your cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions now. You're like, <laughs> like I'd be sad too. Like if I asked Jesus how to go to heaven and he didn't share the gospel with me, but he made something else, this heavy burden, I'd, I'd walk away sad too. So why did Jesus do that? Because here's why. Jesus, as God in the flesh, knew that the seed of the gospel would not take root in this man's heart because the second common belief that keeps a person out of heaven, which is this, total surrender is not required. 
We know from his humility, this man's success had not gone to his head, but it had uh, gripped his heart. It wasn't the fact that this guy had money that was a problem. The fact was his money had him. And the reason we know that is because when Jesus said, hey, listen, that thing you value the most, and I know that you value the most, here's what I'm going to ask you. Do you treasure me more than you treasure these things? And and to to cut through all the superficial spirituality, I'm asking you, are you willing to abandon the life you've built to find new life in me? And Jesus said, you need to to pursue the life you're living and the life you want and life you built, or you can pursue me, but you cannot pursue both things wholeheartedly. So this day, I want you to choose which one would you rather have. And the Bible says the answer is clear because the man walked away sad. See, here's what the guy's believing is that I don't need total surrender. I don't need to abandon my life to find new life. I'll just add Jesus into my already full life. Why did Jesus lay this heavy requirement on this man? Listen, when you think of his exchange with Zacchaeus, he only asked Zacchaeus to give half. This guy says, hey, uh, all of it, would you give it away to be my disciple? Why did Jesus do that? If you're listening, say amen. He did it because a man cannot cling to his idols and genuinely trust in Christ for salvation at the same time. Saving faith is inseparable from repentance, which means turning from sin and self. Mark 1.15, Jesus' message, repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance loosens our grasp on our sin, and faith lays hold of God for deliverance from that sin. And so Jesus knew this guy wasn't willing to turn from sin and self. uh, So Jesus exposed that right off the bat. And the guy said, I'm interested in faith. I'm interested in adding in some superficial belief or spirituality. And Jesus says, are you willing to repent and turn from sin and self? The guy walks away sad. Because here's what Jesus said, total surrender is required. And that's not where your heart, you're totally fine adding me into your already busy life and living out a little corner of your heart. And Jesus said, no, 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 I'm not after your money, but I am after your whole heart. And the guy said, here's the problem, I can't give it to you because I've already given it to something else. And for this guy, it was as well for other people, it's other kind of things. This is astonishing to the disciples. <laughs> Look at verse 24. His disciples were astonished. Verse 26, greatly astonished. Who can be saved? Now, in the parable, this, the Bible does give warnings about riches. The parable of the sower, the thorns that shaked out the word, represent worries and riches and pleasures of life, Luke 8. In the parable of the fool, Jesus described a man who had plenty of goods, but he neglected his own soul. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Uh, scripture talks about that. Paul warned, those who desire to get rich fall into temptation and snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plumb men into ruin and destruction. Now, let me just do a little survey this morning. Raise your hand if you want to be trapped by greed. Would you just raise your hand? Nobody, like, like sometimes when you hear that, you're like, just try me, Lord. You can trust me, right, with my, like, try me. If nobody wants to be trapped by greed, let me just give you a foolproof plan on how not to get trapped by greed. Uh, Give generously. Giving is the antidote to greed. Greed is the appetite of my heart to hoard it up. Generosity is freely giving away. Greed lives like this. It's mine, and I'll keep it. Get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can. That's what greed says, right? That's the message of greed. Generosity says, Lord, it's all yours. And I'm no longer asking, do I have to give 10% or 8%? Is that after tax, before tax? No. Generosity says, Lord, uh, how much do you want me to keep? Because it's all yours. 
So if you want to guard your heart from greed, then give generously. And if you're not giving generously, I'm just assuming you're fine with greed taking root in your heart because you can't hoard it up and give it away at the same time. So if you don't want greed to come into your life, give generously. And that's what Jesus said, hey, would you give it all away to follow me? This guy said, I can't do that. I'm fine adding you in. She said, no, 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 no. Are you willing to surrender everything to me? And the man walked away, brokenhearted. And Jesus wasn't interested in the man's money. The Bible says the son of man had no place to lay his head. What he really wanted this guy was his love, his undivided devotion. What he's asking this guy is this, not will you give me your money, would you give me, willing to give me your heart? And the guy said, I can't because something else already has hold of it. And for him it was wealth, and for you, maybe something else. Do you see how fundamentally different this is between repeating a prayer called the sinner's prayer, like some superstitious thing? Do you see how different this is just walking down the aisle with emotional experience? This is total surrender. This saying, Lord, I, I don't even understand all of this. I'm not even sure. Just, I'm just I'm going to give you everything. Lord, you've got my whole life. I'm desperate for grace. I'm desperate for salvation. I bring nothing to the table. I can't, this, this idea of works or faith and works, I'm just abandoning all of that. I'm trusting in Christ and Christ alone. And Lord, I'm give, I don't have much to offer, but I'm willing to give you my whole heart. And in doing so and abandoning the life I'm trying to build, I finally find eternal life in Jesus and Jesus alone. And here's the good news of the gospel, and we're done. You can find it today too. That if you'll just look at your life and say, Lord, I, I don't have anything. I can't bring anything to the table in the spiritual equation. I'm not trusting in works. I'm not even trusting in faith and works anymore. I'm desperate for grace. I'm throwing myself on the mercy of the cross. Jesus saved me. And the Bible says, whoever calls upon the Lord, in no way will he cast them out. And if you'll call upon the name of the Lord today for salvation, he'll save you too. That is the good news of the gospel. It's available to anyone today who repent and believe. Would you bow your head this morning? If you're here this morning, let me ask you the question once again. What are you trusting in for the forgiveness of your sins? And if the answer is anything besides Jesus and Jesus alone, that's not saving faith. And so let me ask you again, what are you trusting in for the forgiveness of your sins? You're hoping God did his part on the cross and you're trying to do your part? You've just been trying to live a moral life? I'm going to ask you if you believe in God and believe in Jesus or you're interested in this. I, I'm asking you, what are you trusting in for the forgiveness of your sins? And the good news of the gospel is this morning, if you'll come and say, I don't have an answer for that or I've had the wrong answer, good news of the gospel is that today by faith you can receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you don't have to wonder if your resume is good enough you don't have to wonder what you have to do to inherit eternal life because grace is not about doing 
message of grace is done. And so right now, would you trust Jesus Christ alone fully and completely? Would you surrender your life to him? Would you come and pray right in your seat? Would you pray and say, God, I realize I'm a sinner desperately in need of the mercy of God. I need forgiveness for my sins. And I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, and rose the third day so that I can have eternal life. And today, for the first time, I'm trusting Jesus and Jesus alone. I'm placing all of my hope of eternal life on the finished work of the cross. No more works. No more faith in works. Faith alone in Jesus alone for salvation. And Lord, I surrender my life so that I can find it in you. Would you do that this morning? Would you surrender your life to Jesus Christ? Father, I'm grateful for this story and how we see ourselves in it. And God, how you expose the fact that somehow we think we can bring something to the table in salvation. But God, I pray for every person in the room this morning who's struggling with this idea of repentance, this idea of abandoning the life they've been trying to build. God, I pray that you would overwhelm them with your grace this morning. God, no one comes to the Father unless he's drawn by the Son. No one responds in faith today unless the Spirit of God quickens their hearts. And so, Lord, I pray the Holy Spirit would draw people to Jesus this morning people who aren't saved, people who aren't sure if they're saved, that God, they'd walk out of here and they would know they have eternal life, which is what Jesus promised us. And so God, save people as only you can this morning. And whatever lives are changed, whatever salvations are accomplished, we give you the glory for all of that. Your grace is overwhelming. And may it sustain us this week. We pray in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, because we can. Amen.